Matthew chapter 5, we are beginning in verse 21 this morning. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So that's not much right? That's not much to try to tackle this morning. Um, today, as we do move forward in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we, we really start to kind of get into the meat of this. And for many, this is where Jesus' teaching really starts to become difficult. Thus far, let me just recap a little bit where we have been, starting at the beginning of Matthew 5. Uh, we began by looking at the Beatitudes. Those are those blessed are statements. And we said that those statements reveal to us that the path of real or flourishing life in the kingdom of God looks differently than it does to the rest of the world. Jesus takes what looks like blessing to the rest of the world and he turns it on its head. He recontextualizes what it looks like to be called blessed in his kingdom. And one of the things that you will notice is that in Jesus' framework, blessing has literally nothing to do with material possession. Blessing has literally nothing to do with material possession. Instead, Jesus speaks more of internal motivations and external actions. Or maybe another way you could put that is it seems as if Jesus is far more interested with what is in your heart than like what is in your home, right? He's far more interested with what's going on in here than, than what kind of stuff you have or what you're accumulating for yourself. 
From there, we move to Jesus telling his disciples that they are both the salt and light of the world, that through them, the world is being like seasoned and lit with the gospel. And what we said was, this is Jesus calling his church. He's calling believers, his body, into his gospel mission. And all of that was taught in light of the fact that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Old Testament Mosaic law. He says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. However, he he seems to set a high bar of righteousness for his followers because he says that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And those guys would have been viewed by the people that were listening to Jesus as, as being those who represented like the pinnacle of righteousness, the apex of righteousness. And Jesus says, no, 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 your righteousness must be higher than even theirs. And so as we said this past week, achieving that level of righteousness is impossible to us if it is rooted only in human effort, right? If it's just up to us doing the right things, there is no way that our righteousness can, you know, exceed anybody's really. But in Christ, if we are in him, two amazing things happen. First of all, his righteousness is laid on top of us. It covers us. And so the big fancy word is we are justified before God or we are made right before God. And and then the second thing that happens is he desires to sanctify us, which means he desires to, over the course of our lives, help us progressively become more holy as we continually repent, turn from our sin, and turn to him. So his fulfillment of the law, his sacrifice, his death, burial, resurrection, all of those things ultimately give us hope that not just one day we die, we go to heaven, but it actually makes us right before God even though we have done nothing to earn that on our own. It actually justifies us to God. And he also, it's not just in in theory, it's not just in this uber-spiritual sense, he also wants you to become more like him in your life. And so he has sent his Holy Spirit for that purpose. He desires to sanctify you over time. So with those things in mind, as we get into today's passage, it can seem to us, and, and, and I think this is what a lot of people take away from the Sermon on the Mount. It can seem to us as if Jesus is setting some kind of like new standard for morality. And you would actually be dead wrong about that if that's what you think. This is not in any way some new standard that Jesus is setting. No, no, no. God's standard from the beginning of Scripture was that people would be holy in the way that he is holy. His continual refrain to the people of Israel was, Be holy, for I am holy. God's standard from the beginning of time has been himself. Right? God's standard is himself, his perfection, his holiness. And his desire for us is not that we would claim holiness. His desire for us is that we would pursue holiness, that we would seek to be holy in the way that he is holy. But as we've just said, we on our own, we can't do that. So we need help. 
And, and interestingly, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, he uses the word helper. I'm sending you a helper because without me, none of this is possible. So Jesus is not setting some, some new standard here. He's not coming along and creating something new. No, he's restating something that's actually ancient. And, um, and that is very simply that we as God's people, that we would aspire to his character. Right? That we would look at the character of God and that we would desire to emulate it in our lives. That we would see his otherness, his set-apartness, and that we would aspire to it. Not out of a desire to be God, but out of a desire to worship God. I think a key element of worship is not just coming together and singing some songs. A key element of worship, guys, is wanting to be like the one you love is wanting to mimic or emulate the one you love. And we see this all the time in our world. It's just most often misplaced worship. So, so whether it's the kid in like 1993 who's got Michael Jordan posters all over his walls, right? And he's got the shoes and he's playing basketball constantly because he wants to be like Mike. Or it's like 13-year-old Weston who's like playing the guitar and, man, meticulously researching the kind of guitars and amps and guitar gear that my favorite guitar players played in the hopes that one day maybe I can buy that and then I'll sound like them, right? Or, or on the other side, I think it's people who have literally gone to the lengths of, of having surgery to make their face look different and their body look different so that they look more like their favorite celebrity. All of those things are worship. They're misplaced forms of worship, but those things are worship. Sometimes we use the word idolization, right? And we think, well, the Bible says not to make anything an idol. The Bible says not to make anything other than God an idol. But there is this very real sense in the way that we idolize other things that we would actually take those emotions and those feelings and actually give them to him. That when they are placed in him, those things actually become good and valid, right? Is he the one whose love we desire? Is he the one that we want to emulate, right? Is he the one that we obsess over, right? How, how, how can I know him more? How, how can I follow him in a deeper way? Is that the way that you feel about him? We worship the things that we love. The question is, is Jesus on that list for you? For many, Jesus is somewhere on the list, but he's not at the top. He's down a few rungs. Things, seemingly good things, like family, often come above him. Career, money, so on and so forth. So we see worship all the time. It's just so often misplaced worship. But, but just imagine, what if you became so enamored with the God of the universe? What if you became so enamored with Christ that, that he really became the love of your life? Like the central love of your life and, and like the central kind of obsession of your life. If, if he is real, then don't you think that that would be a way more profitable endeavor than me trying to be like a rock star or something? Doesn't that seem far more worthwhile? that we would actually place the creator of all things at the center of our existence. So I say all that to say, when people encounter the Sermon on the Mount, 
they generally have one of two responses. They either say that Jesus is intentionally here giving us like an extreme and hyperbolic perspective to prove the point that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation and, and that we must just let go and trust him if we are to be saved, right? Remember, he's talking about plucking out your eye and cutting off your arm and all this stuff. And we go, man, Jesus is making an extreme or hyperbolic statement so that we recognize, man, we need him. Or they say, Jesus is describing for us how we are to live. And we should seek to put these things into practice in our lives. And, and I say yes to both of those things. I think it's both and. Yes, is Jesus being extreme? Absolutely. But, but when you're talking about the perfection and holiness of God, and you're comparing that to the way that you live life normally, of course it's extreme, Right? Of course, it seems outside of your reach. It is. Of course, Jesus wants us to embrace the fact that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Of course, he wants us to embrace the fact that we must let go and trust him if we are to be saved. There is this very real sense of you cannot attain this, so you need Christ to attain it for you, and he has. But nevertheless, if you belong to Jesus, he is also giving you a, a blueprint for, for like what you are attaining to. In, in all of this, Jesus is verbalizing what it looks like to be like him. Because throughout all of this, he is describing himself, right? He is describing himself. So here's how I want to tackle this today. We don't have time to go like line by line through all of this. And, and while that's certainly good, I also think if, if, for example, we took a week to talk about anger, and then we took a week to talk about divorce, and then we took a week to talk about swearing oaths, I think we could possibly miss what I believe is one of Jesus's biggest overarching points, which is this. Often our understanding of how to live is rooted more in what other people have told us than it is in what we have discovered for ourselves. Let me say that again. Often, our understanding of how to live life, particularly in a religious sense, is often rooted more in what other people have told us rather than being rooted in what we have discovered for ourselves. Or let me try to put that another way. Often, our perspective on what it means to be a Christian is rooted more in what has kind of been handed to us culturally or handed to us by the church than it is rooted in our own study and discovery of Jesus and his word. And so the result of that is that many of us know the right answers to basic religious questions, but we know that they're the right answers because we've been told by others they're the right answers. Rather than because we have discovered them for ourselves. And, and what we are often missing there is the why. I know the answer, but I also can't explain to you why that's the answer. And that's actually a really dangerous position to be in because it's a house of cards. And I think when you look at our world around us, 
man, I see so many people today who've grown up in the church and who can tell you what the right answers are, but then they've encountered some people who just started poking some holes in those right answers, started asking some questions about those things, and the natural response is to go, oh my gosh, like this is, I'm just regurgitating what other people have told me. And I don't really have the ability, do I actually believe this? And then you just spiral out. So you see a lot of people in today's world who are going through what is popularly called deconstruction. I'm taking these things that I've been handed by somebody else, by my parents, by my church, by the culture at large, and now I'm suddenly going, man, is all of this wrong? Right? Is any of this actually real? So it's a dangerous position to be in. Even if the answers you're regurgitating are correct, when we miss the why, it can be a house of cards. So here's how we see this in action in our text today. Jesus is revealing to his disciples, who were good Jews, that they actually did not understand many important Old Testament scriptures correctly. And in the same way, he reveals to us that we must be careful to make sure that what we believe is not just what we've heard or what has been culturally handed to us, but that what we believe is actually rooted in the Word of God. doesn't mean we have to be experts on everything, right? It doesn't mean that we have to be biblical scholars with master's degrees or doctorates in order to anyway understand this. It just means we can't take at face value what other people have handed us without exploring it and digging to it, into it on our own. Again, if he really is the one that we worship and the one that we love, our, should, our desire should be to know him more and more and more, to really encounter him in his word, to want to dig into this and to learn who he is and, and what he's all about and what he means and what that means for me. Those should be things that are central in our lives if we're seeking to orient our lives around him. What often happens culturally is this kind of gigantic game of telephone. You all know the game telephone. You line up a bunch of people, right? And you, you give some message, you whisper some message to the first person, and then it gets passed down to the next person, the next person, the next person, the next person. And, and, and here's what happens most often, you know, right? It gets to the end, and the message is all discombobulated. But oftentimes, I think what you find when you play that game is there is still some semblance of the original message there. It's just gotten jumbled up. It's gotten misconstrued, or some other words have been added into it, or some things have been removed from it. But, but sometimes you can kind of make out how we got from this to this. And sometimes that's exactly what's happening culturally for us. There are elements of the original message that some people can make out, but sometimes the meaning or intent has changed. I think this is what was happening for the disciples and for the culture at large in Jesus' day. They'd taken these Old Testament commandments, but over time, those things had become other things. So here's how this plays out in our text. Three key issues, murder, adultery, and swearing oaths. Now, first, before we do anything, here's what I want you to see. Here's what Jesus does, and he doesn't say this because he doesn't have to, because his audience would have known exactly what he was talking about. Jesus here is actually referencing the Ten Commandments. So specifically, he's referencing the sixth, seventh, and third commandments. Foundational stuff here, guys. Thou shall not murder. Thou shall not commit adultery. 
and thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. This is what he is alluding to. So here's what the culture had done with those commandments. And we do the same sort of thing today. The culture had decided that the commandments, rather than being like guides for how to live life, that instead the commandments were really hard and fast bars, right? So, so here's, here's what I mean by that. The culture had decided and had taught that because the law said, thou shall not murder, that really the big boy sin there was murder. Never mind the fact that you hate everyone else around you. Never mind the fact that you're abusive to everyone else around you. Never mind the fact that you have treated people terribly. I haven't murdered anyone. And so there is this sense that as long as we don't cross that line, we haven't actually done something wrong, right? This is basically what Jesus is saying. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but do you think that's all that matters, right? What about being angry at other people, right? What about being unforgiving towards other people? So the culture had decided that instead of being a general guide on how to live life, that they were instead hard and fast bars, and I can come all the way up to the bar as long as I don't cross the line, everything's going to be okay. So never mind hating people, never mind abusing people, never mind being violently angry with people, never mind not forgiving people. Those were acceptable ways to live as long as you don't murder anyone. So it's like, do whatever you want to do, just don't cross this line, you're going to be good. You want to divorce your wife and take up with someone else? That's fine. Give her a certificate of divorce. Don't commit adultery while you're married to her, right? Divorce her first, and then you can move on to the next thing, right? So this is how people were thinking, right? You want to swear? Swear by anything you want to. Just don't swear by the name of God, and everything's going to be fine. You're going to be good. Go all the way up to the line. Just don't cross the line. Let me give you two kind of examples of this. One's a modern example, and one is a biblical example. Uh, this may be a little bit dated. Some of you may not be old enough to really remember this, but back in the 1990s, President Bill Clinton was impeached. He had had an affair, right, with Monica Lewinsky. There was all of this gross evidence that came out that made it very clear that there had actually been some kind of a physical relationship. But Bill Clinton wanted to basically say, but we didn't go all the way. And so as a result, it wasn't actually an affair. It wasn't actually adultery. Like we never did the whole thing. Never mind everything else, right? We maybe went all the way up to the line, but we didn't actually cross that line, so I'm innocent. This was basically the, the, like, the, the way that his legal team pursued this case. And, and, and it, it, it got to the point where everything was being parsed like so intricately that it just became ridiculous. There is this one point where he's being asked a question, and his response famously was, well, it depends on what the definition of is is. Right? So when you're at that point where it depends on what the definition of is is as to whether you are guilty or innocent, it's just gone to a level of ridiculousness that is just beyond absurd. But this happens in our world every single day, right? And the thing that he was seeking to do and that so many people are seeking to do is they were seeking to justify themselves before others. We do this in lesser ways, hopefully lesser ways, right? We try to justify ourselves. We say, well, yeah, I did this and this and this, but I didn't do this. 
We try to validate our own actions by comparing it to the actions of other people or by comparing it to maybe some perceived standard of morality, right? And go, yeah, 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 I may be, I may be this, but, you know, I'm not murdering people. And that seems hyperbolic, but this is what we do. We get caught in sin, or we recognize, or we feel convicted of sin, and we think, yeah, yeah, I, I get that, I do that, but... We try to justify ourselves. So that's a modern example. Let me give you a biblical example. This is Luke chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but but listen. Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? So this is the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's where Jesus goes after this exchange. And this lawyer stands up. Don't think Gordon McKernan, right? This isn't, this isn't Morris Bart stepping in here to pose a question. It's not that type of lawyer. This would have been somebody who would have been an expert in the law of Moses, right? And here's what gets displayed over and over again in the Gospels. People know the right answers. They know the right answers. They just don't want to live the right answers. This is the rich young ruler, right? Jesus basically asked him, have you kept the commandments? And that guy says, yeah, I have. Well, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Eh, No thanks. This guy knows the right answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there's a flaw in his question because he assumes that he could do something to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, rather than saying, well, you know, it's impossible for you through your own action to inherit eternal life, he instead, he throws the question back at him, and he basically says, well, you're an expert in the law. What do you say? And he answers correctly. He says, the Shema. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This, according to Jesus, is both the foundation and summation of the whole law. All of the law. That we would love God with our whole heart and love our neighbor as ourself. But here's the loophole that this guy thinks he's found. But who is my neighbor? depends on what your definition of the word neighbor is. Right, Jesus? Because surely everybody's not my neighbor, you know? How in the world is that possible? How in the world is that logical? How in the world could I ever love just anybody in the way that I love myself? How how am I ever going to inherit the kingdom of heaven if I somehow have to love my neighbor? And, 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 And do I get to decide who my neighbor is? Because I've got some neighbors I want to love, and I've got other neighbors I don't want to love. So, so what do I do with this? This guy thinks he's clever. 
So rather than happily embracing the idea of loving God and loving others, this guy has come to the conclusion, well, surely everyone can't be my neighbor, so I don't really have to do this. And then you can easily see how the dominoes can start to fall and bring us to a place where I can be an abusive, selfish jerk to others as long as I don't commit murder or adultery, right? I, don't, I mean, who's my neighbor anyway? Like, so I'm, I'm just going to live my life, right? I'm not going to cross all these big lines. I'm just going to do what I do, you know? Is this making sense to you guys? So this guy wanted to justify himself before Jesus. He wanted to make himself appear right and good, but the only way that you can be justified is through Christ. That's the only way that you can be made right and good in the eyes of God. If you try to justify yourself, the only course of action you have is to try to like bend or twist the law or to read the scripture in such a way that it somehow leads you to validate your sin. And the easiest way to do that is to take scripture out of context or to cherry pick the parts of the Bible that you like while leaving out the other parts that you don't like. And and so here's the point of all of this for us. Our culture is continually handing us recontextualizations of scripture to try to justify modern sins or to try to justify modern ways of living or thinking. Our culture is continuously cherry picking scripture or, or, or they're just relegating the Bible to being this kind of quaint, um, antiquated artifact that really has nothing to say to our enlightened and nuanced world. And if we aren't careful, we will buy that because it seems easier than actually having to wrestle with Scripture and to wrestle with the tension of Scripture. I was listening to a podcast recently and Um, They were talking about the writings of a German sociologist who has studied what he calls background decisions and foreground decisions. And I found this to be fascinating, and it explained a lot about the polarization we find in our world. I mean, it just seems like our world is so divided, like everybody is either on one side or the other. And this German sociologist says, listen, in any society, there are background decisions, There are decisions that the culture has made for you or that your family unit has made for you. There are things that you might not even recognize as decisions because they're so like already fixed. So here's an example. Never at any point in my life have I thought, hmm, I wonder if I'm a boy or a girl. That's not something for me that has ever been presented to me as some kind of a decision that needs to be made. That is changing rapidly. Really, I've never had to consider in my life, hmm, what is marriage? Like, what is real marriage? But now suddenly, something that for centuries was a foregone background, foregone conclusion, background decision, is now suddenly in the foreground. And this is happening more and more and more. As our world becomes more pluralistic, as it becomes more relativistic, suddenly people are being faced with all of these decisions that they've never had to make before. And you know what happens? You get decision fatigue. You do. Do you know what you do when you get decision fatigue? Your natural tendency is to run to fundamentalism. 
whether on the conservative side of the spectrum or the liberal side of the spectrum. Because when you run to fundamentalism on either side, when you run to polarization on either side, you find a tribe, and your tribe tells you what the answers to those questions are. What's far more difficult is living in the middle, is living in the tension. And tension, I think, is a key component of life in this world in Christ. Because we don't belong here, but yet this is where we find ourselves. And yet, somehow, we have been saved from our sin and justified before God, and yet we still wrestle with sin every day. We wrestle with selfishness and anger and lust and all these things Jesus is talking about. And yet, as our world is becoming more secular, more pluralistic, more relativistic, all of these things that for many of us have long been foregone conclusions are now suddenly big questions that everybody's having to make a decision on or answer. They're foreground. And so what we want to do is we want to run to one of the poles, right? One of the extremes and go, I'm just going to camp out here because it seems safer. And I'm going to shout at the other side like they're a bunch of idiots without recognizing that I've done the same thing that they've done. I've just gone to the other end of the spectrum. Is that making sense? That explains to me so much of what we see in our world today, right? Rather than living in the tension, we want to go to the poles. So Jesus, as a way of driving all of this home, basically says, look, you may not have murdered your brother, but have you forgiven him? Because if you try to say, well, I hate my brother and will never forgive him, but at least I haven't murdered him, you are just making yourself look like a fool. If you really, really believe that you somehow come out of that whole thing appearing righteous, then you're a fool. It's like you're trying to say, look, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but my brother isn't my neighbor, right? Hopefully this is what we see. We cannot justify ourselves, and there is nothing, nothing that we can do on our own to be made righteous in the eyes of God. There is not a loophole here. It is only through the sacrifice of Christ. It is only through what Jesus has done on our behalf. It is only through his fulfillment of the law that we have any hope of being made right before the holiness of God. We have to learn to care far less about trying to justify ourselves and our actions to other people and care far more about trusting Christ to justify us and to sanctify us. That we would be obedient to allow him to mold us into the people that he would have us be. This is why the great commandment is so foundational. It begins with us loving God. At the end of the day, that should be our primary goal in life. He should be the one we idolize. He should be the thing we obsess over. But here's the deal. You will find that the primary way that we love God is by loving our neighbor, is by loving those who are created in his image. If you say you love God, but you don't love your neighbor, then you don't love God. That's how the Shema works. It's not, I'm going to love God and show him affection. Oh, and then also I'm going to show affection to my neighbors around me. No, 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 no. These things are intertwined. If you say you love him, then you love what he has created.
what has been made in his image, and you see his image in the people around you you encounter, even if you don't like them, right? Even if they rub you the wrong way, even if they're offensive to you. And you have to have this mindset as we go deeper into this sermon, because then Jesus starts talking about things like, you need to pray for your enemies. You need to forgive them. You need to love your enemies. What? That's like the least American thing I can possibly imagine. That's why Jesus isn't a Republican or a Democrat, right? That's not a box that you can take him and try to squeeze him into. He lives outside of that realm completely. Let's stop there for today. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, you are good. And uh, Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. That as we come together, that we can see that this all does not ride on us. And Father, I pray that that would bring us great relief. That our burdens would be lightened because of our connection to you. And that we would recognize that what you've done for us is something we could have never done for ourselves. Father, help us to move past seeking um, maybe to, to live in our sin in such a way that, that we validate it to ourselves because we think, man, I'm not doing this or that or I'm not as bad as this or that. Father, help us to truly root out our sin and give it to you and move past it. Empower us with your spirit to do that work. And may we read this text, the truth of your gospel, as not just a thing to be studied or pondered, but truly as something that we are to aspire to and to seek to emulate in our lives. So fill us with the truth of your gospel as we go out into our week and into our world. Give us eyes to see those around us who are made by you in your image. And Father, may we seek to show them your love and grace as you have shown us um, an amazing depth of love and grace. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen.